بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وآله الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد Session number 16 of Stages of Akhlaq of Ayatollah Jawadi What we were discussing was we were in the chapter of Tawbah and we got into this whole discussion of istighfar and then veils of darkness and light and all of that so how did we get there well talked about how we usually do istighfar and tawbah for our sins right and so we also notice that the infallibles are also um, doing istighfar or that famous hadith or the hadith that we discussed that the prophet sallallahu says that i do istighfar 70 times per day and so he explained kind of why he does istighfar every day. He says that لا يغانو على قلبي that my heart might get a little cloudy or clouds might come and surround my heart. And so I do istighfar. And so here, this whole discussion of veils of darkness and light based on other hadiths as well that we have, it came up. And revisiting the definition of sin why were we doing tawbah and istighfar from sin? Because it was an obstacle, right? An obstacle between us and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is where some of these urafa, they will say that, okay, if sin is an obstacle and we are doing tawbah from it, so that we remove the obstacle, then in our books, every obstacle will be a sin. Okay? Even if it's not haram from a shari'i perspective. Okay, and that's where this whole discussion of veils came in. Anything that is going to be a barrier, a hijab, a barzakh between us and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in their books, in their books, is something to do tawbah from, do istighfar from. That's where this whole discussion came. And then those four different types of istighfar, um, the istighfar, of course, tawbah, we said that you know, you have the normal one. And then you have the khas one, the special one. These have to do with the actions that we do. Then you have the akhas, the very special one. And that one has four parts to it we talked about, right? Three of those four having to do with really high individuals. But then the fourth one having to do with al-insanul kamil. Okay? Al-insanul kamil does istighfar according to the hadith and the explanations of these scholars. He does istighfar so that he can get in the way of and repel any veils of light that might want to overtake him or her. But those other three, they have to do with veils of darkness that overtake us, have already overtaken us, or might want to overtake us. Istighfar is from all of these things. Best case is that a veil of light that has overtaken our heart, that we want to remove, we do istighfar for. So these three are for those really high individuals. Um, none of these are sin, by the way, from a fiqhi, shari'i perspective. But from an irfani perspective, yes, they might, be, they might be considered problems. And because they're a problem, they will deserve and they call for istighfar and tawbah. So that's how we got into all of this. The, the, the relationship between what we're talking about these days and istighfar is such that you know I just explained. Now, 
Um, what we got to was, we talked about ilm and knowledge, and knowledge of the deen specifically speaking, being one of those veils lots of times for certain individuals. Right? It can either be a veil of darkness or a veil of light, as I explained last, last week. Usually, it's a veil of darkness for many of us. Um, but it can also be a veil of light for some, and we'll get to that later. Right now, we're focusing on how knowledge can be an Islamic knowledge, religious knowledge, knowledge of God can sometimes be a veil of dhulma and darkness for somebody. That's where we're, what we were talking about. Now, I made a point last week that I want to elaborate on a little bit, um, and that is that how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sometimes, when He loves someone, He won't allow them to gain too much religious knowledge. Okay? Now, once again, I have to make this disclaimer. We'll talk about this hopefully towards the end of today's session. Um, that this does not mean that we should not pursue knowledge. We shouldn't read up on things. No, that's a different story. We'll get to that, okay? But for now, there's some types of knowledge that if you know it, you don't know it, it doesn't really make much of a difference in your growth, your spiritual growth and proximity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It doesn't make a difference too much. These things sometimes, lots of times even, I dare say, can become veils for people. And Allah loves somebody and doesn't allow them, doesn't give them the tawfiq sometimes to be able to gain that knowledge. Yes, there is some knowledge that we have to have of God, of religion. It is the basic knowledge, foundational knowledge that we have to have or else we won't grow at all. Like we won't, we won't be able to attain the key to Jannah. So Allah will inshallah give tawfiq for that. But then there are certain things that, okay, knowing them and not knowing them, right, doesn't make too much of a difference in one's actual proximity to Allah. And lots of times it might be a veil for that person. Allah, in some cases, I, I can say, won't actually give that tawfiq to this individual. Why? Because He loves them so much. All right? I'll give, it's just like wealth. I'll give you an example. There's a person during the time of the Holy Prophet by the name of Tha'lab. Tha'lab bin Hatib, um, and some of you might have heard this story of Tha'lab with the verse that says, if I remember the verse, Man ahad Allah, I forget the verse, and I didn't write it down. But anyway, the, it's a sha'an al nuzul for, for one of the verses of the Qur'an that speaks about those who are true to their oath to Allah when Allah gives them from His fadl. Okay, and out of His mercy, He gives. They stay true to their oath and promise. That's the verse. I don't remember exactly the wording in Arabic. Unfortunately, I forgot. Um, but in regards to this story, this man, it says that uh, he came, he was one of the Ansar of Medina. He comes to the Prophet ﷺ. He says, pray to Allah that Allah gives me some mal and some wealth. So he said to him, Ya Tha'laba qalilun tu'addi shukrahu خَيْرٌ مِنْ كَثِيرًا لَا تُطِيقُهُ That, hey, Tha'lab, like, I can do this prayer and dua for you, but uh, the little bit that you have, but you're able to fulfill the, the gratefulness of it and the gratitude of it towards Allah, you know, is better than too much that you just can't handle. Alright? And so this person, uh, he, says, he says to this person, he says, don't you see a good example in me, the Holy Prophet, don't you see like I don't I'm not I don't have all the wealth in the world. Look at me, look up to me, you know. 
But whatever I have, I'm you know grateful to Allah for it. He says, if I wanted though, I could get you know the mountains of gold and silver to be on to be with me. But you know, I'm just I'm not. I'm not I, I haven't asked for that. So there's a reason why I don't ask for such a thing for myself, the Prophet says. So, this person is convinced, it seems. Then he comes back to the Prophet later, though. <laughs> He's like, uh, hey, can you do dua, please, for some wealth for me? And so he says, I swear. You can tell this person went, thought a little bit. He's like, okay, the Prophet is worried that I won't fulfill my duties if I have this wealth. So he thinks about it. And he comes to the conclusion that, okay, I will make sure that I do what I have to do. And I'm going to go to the Prophet ﷺ and promise him that I will do what I have to do. I will not let this distract me from my duties towards whatever it is that I have. Alright, so what happens is, he, he comes back to the Prophet and asks him, and he promises this. And he makes an oath, he says, The one who has sent you with truth, I swear by that person, why by Allah in other words. If he gives me this mal, this wealth, I will give every haq, every possessor of haq, their haq. So the Prophet does uh, dua for him, Allahumma arzuq tha'labata malan. So eventually this person makes it, makes the American dream, you know. And so he's living the life and it says here, ضاقت عليه Madina. The city of Medina became too small for him. You know when you got too much, Right? The city just can't, it doesn't have enough uh, room for you anymore. When you got those good cars, you just can't fit them all in one garage, you know, that kind of thing. So he goes to the outskirts of Medina. So someone might say, what's wrong with going to the outskirts of Medina? And then slowly he, he has to go even further out. He goes far away from Medina. <laughs> so this got him so distracted. Was it haram wealth? It wasn't haram wealth. I mean, this is the wealth that the Prophet has done du'a for, right? So there's nothing wrong with it, of course. <laughs> it's not like the Prophet's going to say, Oh Allah, give him wealth, and then he like, ends up robbing a bank. He's like, Alhamdulillah, you know, the Prophet's <laughs> du'a was fulfilled. <laughs> That's not how it works. So um, it says that, yeah, his wealth kept growing and growing to the point where he was distracted from Salatul Jumu'ah, Salatul Jama'ah. He wasn't showing up anymore. And as you all probably know and heard, have heard, Salatul Jumu'ah during the Prophet's time is wajib, it's not mustahab, it's wajib. So the time comes that the Prophet sends somebody to get sadaqah from this person, zakat from this person. And so it says that when they went to him, فَأَبَى He said no. وَبَخِلَ Exhibited stinginess. And then he said, and this is the part that he becomes like shaitan. What did shaitan do? Shaitan didn't just say, Oh Allah, I'm sorry, I just don't want to bow down. What did shaitan do? Shaitan tried to act like he knows something. This guy also said, The verse that talks about zakat and giving zakat is just like the one that speaks about jizya. Jizya is that payment that you know, Ahlul Kitab make to the Muslim government and then the Muslim government takes care of them as civilians, you know, as, as the rest and takes care of them, protects them, everything about them. Jizya is wajib on them, not on the Muslims. When you become Muslim, you don't have the jizya on your back anymore, right? He says, just like jizya, zakat is also for the non-Muslims, not for us after we're Muslim. So this guy starts actually arguing with the Prophet about these things. And then the Prophet says, Ya wayha ta'labata, ya wayha ta'labah. 
that woe unto Tha'laba. Yeah. So this is where he ended up. Allah didn't want, apparently, wealth for Tha'lab, but he pushed for it. Of course, this doesn't mean that we don't do dua for things, right? Uh, but the Prophet did, uh, did show his concern about this, and eventually this is what happened. So one might be able to conclude that this was not for Tha'lab. This type of wealth was not for him. He didn't have what it takes. And so knowledge, brothers and sisters, sometimes, all right, can become a concern in Allah's eyes for an individual. He knows my capacity. I'm trying my best to learn about this or trying to learn about that. Trying to learn about Irfan, for example. I don't know, these kinds of things. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows. This won't, learning won't be enough. We talked about this last week and the quote from Imam Khomeini and others. This knowledge isn't going to be enough for it to, to lift you. As a matter of fact, when you learn this knowledge, you're going to think you have been lifted. Before you know it, this has become a veil of darkness for you. Yes, qalilun tu'addi shukrahu khayrun min kathirin la tutiquhu. You don't have the capacity for. Yeah, the, 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 the abundance that you don't have what it takes to handle. Just stick to the minimum. Ayatollah Bahjad was always about the minimum. This guy wouldn't say anything more than what the people could bear. It's interesting. He would always say, uh, he would always repeat this hadith when people would ask him, like, hey, give us, uh, give us one of those special prescriptions. Right? He would say, just do what you have, what you already know. Allah will give you knowledge of that which you don't know. And this is based on a hadith that we have. Man amila bima alim, allah ilma ma lam ya'lam. The person who does and acts upon that which they know already, Allah will give them knowledge of that which they don't know. Yeah, so I guess what we can say is if we're stuck sometimes and we've plateaued, it's because maybe we're not making enough sacrifices that we're supposed to, but at the same time, I don't want us to get obsessive about things either and become waswasi about things either. It takes time. But what's for sure is we have to clean up our wajib and haram observation throughout, observance, excuse me, throughout the day. Make sure that that is taken care of at least. That one time that I do that haram, that one time is getting in the way a lot of a lot of stuff. That's the one time Allah's watching. Yeah, you've heard this enough from me. I, I don't want to. I keep repeating myself, and that's why this little bit that we act upon is going to be considered real knowledge. The rest is just as I said, just accumulation of data and information. That's all it is. It's not knowledge from an Islamic perspective. The hadiths tell us that this is not going to be knowledge. The knowledge that you just accumulate but you don't act upon is actually going to be a problem. As a matter of fact, the hadith, it says that on the Day of Judgment, the people of the hellfire will seek refuge from the stench of an alim who would not act upon his uh, knowledge. An alim mean, meaning a, not, not, a, not a sheikh or anything necessarily. No. A possessor of knowledge Okay, and maybe this hadith particularly is speaking about scholars, maybe one can argue. But all in all, this person had knowledge, but was tariqun li'amalihi. He was doing tariq of his, uh, of the amal, or, or ilmihi, excuse me, tariqun li'ilmihi, was abandoning his knowledge, not acting upon his knowledge. You know what it's like? This is my example, okay? This is my example, see if you agree with me. You're like, knowledge is something good. Knowledge is like gold. Knowledge is like perfume. It should smell good. What stench? This is how I see it though. It's like food. Food, a person will devour, will consume. This will be, the nutrients of it will be uh, absorbed into the body. And everything will be fine. Correct? 
But if I keep carrying that food, not consuming that food and letting it, letting it get absorbed into my body, what's going to happen? That food's going to go bad eventually. It's going to stink. It's going to stink, right? This is just an example of you know, this hadith that says that they're going to stink on the Day of Judgment. This knowledge, yes, it was to be used for something. It wasn't used, it wasn't absorbed, it's going to stink now. Kind of like food. Yeah. And so, once this happens, once a person is able to, inshallah, uh, understand that Allah is the one who gives knowledge, not the books. Mm-hmm. Then, yes, they will try their best once again. The disclaimer is still there. We're going to have to cover this, inshallah, today, hopefully. What Imam Khomeini says about knowledge and the importance of the pursuit of knowledge. All right? But once someone understands all of this, they will understand that it's not in the books necessarily. Right? You have to do your part, but knowledge is imparted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's special knowledge, that good knowledge. Sayyid Hashim Haddad is a good example of that. There's a book called, I don't know the English, is it The Detached Soul or The Liberated Soul? One of these two, okay? Sayyid Hashim al-Haddad, which I, I personally feel that this book should maybe should not have been translated. <laughs> I've said this to people before too. Because in it there's a lot of things that a person will pick up and read and they'll be like, okay, this applies to me. No, it doesn't. That doesn't apply to you. That applies to Sayyid Hashim al-Haddad, <laughs> who was a student of Allah Qadi for 25 years. Until the Bahjat was with Alama Qadi for I think about four years, something like that. Said Hashim Haddad, they say for 25 years, yeah, from what I remember, he was with, uh, with, uh, with uh, Alama Qadi. <laughs> so, like, wow. Alama Tawatawai, maybe, I don't know, uh, this one I'm not sure about. I remember Ayatullah Bahjat was four, him was 25. Alama Tawatawai, maybe, uh, what, what, I've, what I'm sure about is less than 10 years, maybe even less than five, all right? So, this Sayyid Hashim Haddad, he says a lot of things, he does a lot of things, they're not for everybody. So this book, it's a pretty dense book too. They've translated it to English, which of course they have the best intentions. But yeah, you just have to be careful. I, I would say people, if they pick that book up, um, not to think that everything in there applies to them. All right, But there are some nuggets in there, lots of nuggets um, in that book. Um, and really gems. That I think a person who does know how to navigate such books, will be able to pick those up and take those as inspiration and motivation for their own practical irfan. Alright? Now, in there, there's a, there's a line that I really like. And I'm, try, I'm saying this just to show that this... Sayyid Hashim Haddad, Haddad, what does Haddad mean? Can anyone tell me? Haddad, blacksmith. Right? Haddad means blacksmith, a person who deals with hadid. Right? So, he was a blacksmith and there's some interesting stories about, about some of the stuff he would do as a blacksmith. Like he would reach down and Sometimes when he wasn't apparently paying attention that others might see this, he would just take out the horseshoe from the furnace without one of those, uh, what are they called? Uh, some tool that they have to take stuff out of the furnace. Okay. <laughs> and his, there's this guy that's working with him and he sees this, he runs away. He's like, what the heck? He runs away. Sayyid <laughs> Hashim Haddad. Now once again, I don't want to make it sound like these individuals are always doing like miraculous things like that. No, like maybe once or twice in his lifetime someone might have seen him. Anyway, um, this Sayyid Hashim Haddad, from what I remember once again, I read this book a long time ago, uh, when I was a better person than I am now. Um, he went to Hawza. He went to Hawza. How long? 
maybe two years. If I remember correctly, he says, I went up to Suyuti, the book Suyuti, and I didn't continue. Alright, this person though, look what Alama Qadi says about him. What are we talking about? We're talking about how Allah gives knowledge, real knowledge. It says that uh, Al-Qadi, he said, or he would, he would say, Mi Farmut, that Sayyid Hashim, when it comes to Tawheed, he has Ta'assub. Ta'assub means like when you're tribalistic, when you're, when you're very, very biased about things. He was very serious and strict about uh, Tawheed to the point. Uh, he says that he is very strict about the Tawheed of the essence of Allah and he has, he has tasted and touched and felt Tawheed to the point that it is impossible for anything to poke any holes in his Tawheed anymore. Now someone here might say, oh, but what about the test? The test is for all of us forever and all of that kind of stuff. Well, the same answer, the same genre of an answer that we give for the ma'sumin when we say they don't commit sin, but they still have free will. At a lower, much lower level, of course, we will say about a person like him. When Alam Qadi says that his tawheed, you cannot poke any holes in it anymore. Nothing is going to poke any holes anymore. It's airtight. It means that this person has seen something and experienced something that coming back from that is not very easy. All right? So I'll give you an example. This is something I asked personally myself from one of these people that I knew had reached a nafsul mutma'inna. And I asked him once. Um, I asked a person who reaches a nafsul mutma'inna, is it possible for them to ever regress, go back from nafsul mutma'inna? He said no. <laughs> and he can say no because, I mean, he didn't say this part, but I'm going to deduce this from it that. He's probably there himself and he is experiencing everything himself and he knows that there's no way you can come out of this anymore. Yeah. We had a, um, in, the, in that first year of Hawza, uh many, many years ago, um, there was this one kid from Qom, from Qom. So you had people coming from outside of Qom and inside of Qom to the Hawza. When we started our, our class, we had like 30 people in it. It was a big class actually. One, our class is one of the biggest. 25, 30 kids. This guy over the past, next course of maybe one, two, three years that he was in our class, I could tell he's not good at the studies. Right? And eventually he left. But I did notice one thing about him. He was very spiritual. Very quiet, very humble. You could tell he would try, he just couldn't. He didn't have what it took for these studies. Now his dad was one of the close people to Ayatollah Baha'uddini, who is a huge figure when it comes to the spiritual world. Okay. And so we always knew about him having some links to Ayatollah Baha'uddini. Of course Ayatollah Baha'uddini wasn't alive back then. But he was very close to those who were students of Ayatollah Baha'uddini. Right? And his own father was one of the students. And so after a few years, I saw him in the street or somewhere. I don't know where I saw him. Yeah, somewhere in the streets or something. I saw him. I don't even know if he recognized me, but I recognized him. And I could tell this guy, he made the right decision to go. It wasn't for him. But you could tell that this guy is like somewhere else when it comes to spirituality, you know. 
So the point I'm trying to make with all of these examples is that this knowledge is good, but it's not a, it's not, it doesn't make or break things necessarily. Yes, the foundational knowledge everyone needs to have for sure. And we all do have, inshallah. The Bedouin has it, the philosopher has it, the PhD has it, the mathematician has it. They all have it, right? But more than that, yes, we will try our best, but the rest is in Allah's hands. I mean, I personally even came to this conclusion when I was in the house. I was like, after like maybe seven, eight, ten years, I was like, hey, wait a minute. It seems like the key to Jannah is not necessarily in the Hawza. A person outside of the Hawza can also get it. Because <laughs> all our life, we were told by some that, yeah, I mean, that's, this is the path. This is the way. It is, I mean, it, it does facilitate a lot of things. Um, and it has its own challenges and sacrifices, but that is not the active ingredient, the knowledge that you gain and the books that you buy. No, the key to Jannah is in Ubudiyah is how much servitude you have to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so having said all of that now, someone might say, okay, so let's sit back, relax, not worry about learning anything, no need to read up on deen, no need to read up on histories, uh, or, or, or I don't know, whatever, philosophy or theology, things like that, Quran, no, 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 no. This, it's now time to talk about this disclaimer that I keep bringing up. None of this means that we should not pursue knowledge. The same way the story of Tha'lab doesn't mean that we should not pursue wealth anymore. No man, that's a dumb thing to say. If, for example, if you take that famous hadith by the Prophet he says nine-tenths of wealth is in tijara, in trade and business and all that kind of stuff. Um, although I'm not sure if that's in our sources, but if you take a hadith like that and similar ones, they're, you can tell they're pushing us directly or indirectly to go and try to make as much uh, wealth as we can as long as it doesn't get in the way of other things. As long as it doesn't get in the way of other things. There's a condition. Let's say the same thing here now. Knowledge. Alright, you're scaring us, man. All these stories, all these things about people who never made, got, the, got the book knowledge, but then they got the divine knowledge from, up, from up above and all that kind of stuff. So it just seems like we shouldn't care about pursuing knowledge. No. That's not the case either. It's the same thing with wealth and other things. No, 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 no. The condition has to be fulfilled. The or else it will be just another aspect of the dunya. And usually the mistake that we make when it comes to different aspects of the dunya is our perspective. Or else the dunya itself has no problems, bichara. It has no problems. Imam Ali, yes, he's dissing the dunya left and right in Nahjul Balagha. But then all of a sudden, when others start dissing the dunya, he says, well, wait, slow down here. Which dunya are you talking about? The dunya that the prophets would use to secure akhirah? Or the uh, servants of Allah would use to, to secure akhirah? The one that the angels come to send down to and all that kind of stuff? This is natural blah. No, no, dunya is not bad. But Imam Ali, you yourself are saying dunya is bad. Well, he'll explain to you. He says, when I say it's bad, I always say dunya kum. Your dunya is bad. Meaning what? The way you look at it. The way you deal with it. The way you act as if you're going to be here forever. Or else dunya, there's nothing wrong with dunya. Come in here, take care of stuff, you're out. Just like a rest area. Who wants to live in a rest area? No, nobody. But rest areas are very, very important. Bucky's is very, very important. <laughs> you know? Because it's, it's on the way, right? It pushes you for the, to, to, to your destination. Or else we might, not, we might not ever make it, you know? No, no, rest areas are good. But it's called a rest area. It's not called home, right? So if somebody looks at the rest area and is like, home sweet home, 
Does that make the rest area bad? No, that makes this person like off, way off. Here also, knowledge, nothing wrong with it. Wealth, nothing wrong with it. It's our perspective, unfortunately. Uh, and because we are materialistic beings, all of a sudden it's like so easy for us to just fall off track and to just look at this as everything. All right? So now, talking about the knowledge here, Imam Khomeini has a, a few good lines I want to share with you because if you remember last week, we were quoting him a lot because this whole thing about hijabs, of the way, uh, uh, veils of light and darkness of, of knowledge especially, you find it in his, in his words a lot. So there's an excerpt here. I'm going to skip the first part of it because that's where he's talking about how knowledge can be, in, be a hijab of nur, which we'll get to later when we talk about veils of light. We're still in veils of darkness. He says, after he goes through that, he says, but this, what I just said about this being a veil, it should not, it should not, um, it should not prevent an individual from pursuing and going after uh, knowledge. Because this itself is a remembrance of the haqq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because it is very unlikely, he says, that a person, it's very unlikely for a person not to gain this book knowledge that we're talking about here, of, of the religion of course, okay? For them not to gain that and live up to its conditions, its conventional conditions, to gain knowledge, what do you have to do? Yes, you have to make some sacrifices. Yes, you have to act upon the knowledge that you're gaining. Things like that. These conventional conditions of the pursuit of knowledge. He says it's very unlikely for a person to not go into these matters and yet still make it to the tree, that pure, the shajara tayyibah of ma'rifah, to that pure tree of ma'rifatullah. He says it's very unlikely. Whoa. So these, what we're doing right now, inshallah, these things are important at the end of the day. We just have to make sure we have the right perspective. So he says, he says, so the first stage is for a person to put themselves to, through a little bit of academic hard, hardship. He says, Riyadat ilmiyah. Right? Riyadat ilmiyah. To put yourself through a little bit of hardship for, for, for learning. And to do your part of all the conditions and all the preliminary steps of gaining that knowledge from Allah. One of those preliminary steps, he says, is through knowledge of the books and these mafahim, these concepts and the theory and everything. That's important, he says. And, and then he ends with this. He says, uh, that's why they say, Al-Ulum Badrul Mushahadat. That ulum and sciences, and of course here once again we're talking about uh, those, um, those sciences of the religion. They are the seed of Mushahadat. They are the seed that will lead to a tree of mushahadat, of disclosure, of experiencing certain things. So you plant the seed, you water it with amal, and then inshallah it bears fruit. Which amal? The amal that is in accordance with the knowledge that, you, that you've learned. Ayatollah Bajjah says, act upon that you know, and Allah will give you more. Fruits. That's what we're after. Oh. And then he says this, which is pretty cool. He says, and if the, this knowledge that you pursue in this life, due to certain hurdles and obstacles, does not yield those fruits that you were after, yes, they will give it to you in other realms. Right? Maybe in the Barzakh. And this is a famous story. I have not asked Shahid Mutahri's son about this, because um, we would see him there. But... Um, 
they say that his son said that I saw my father in my dreams once. And I said, what's going on in the Barzakh? I asked him, what's going on with you in the Barzakh? He said, Imam Hussein is teaching me Tawheed. Alright? So they say, Allama Tabatabai, he was upset when Shaykh Mutahri got killed and assassinated. He was doing some crazy philosophy with Allama Tabatabai, crazy in a good sense, of course. And he, they reached Haraka Jauhariya and they never finished it. And that's when he was assassinated, actually, which in Haraka Jauhariya is a very important uh, subject in, in philosophy. And so, Allama um, Tabatabai was very upset, of course. But, like, who cares? If I can't figure out, if I can't do the discussions of Harakah Jauhariya here, if, if it's true, this dream, and if it's true, what's happening in the Barzakh, which I don't feel is too far-fetched, I mean, would you rather do Harakah Jauhariya in the dunya or have Tawheed with Imam Hussein in the Barzakh? <laughs> you know? Knowledge of the books is good. He did his part, but it's good, but it, it's really nothing. It's just something that you prove to Allah that, hey, I'm ready for what you want to give me, inshallah. And I'm acting upon what I know as well, of course. Yeah. So, it's all about perspective. It's all about, I just want to share some poetry with you, and then slowly wrap it up. It's all about this, brothers and sisters. As Hafiz says, and I'm not, I'm not, a big, I'm not too big on poetry, but you know, there's some good stuff in there when it comes to Irfani poetry. Um, uh, Hafiz Shirazi, he says, Take care, I'll, say, I'll, say, I'll read the Farsi and then I'll translate it. He says, Take care about taqwa and danish, dar tariqat kafarist. Rahro gar sad honar darad, tavakul bayadash. Alright? Which means to, he starts with what? Take care, which means to lean on something, to rely on something. Okay? He says, To rely on your taqwa and your knowledge, your danish in the tariqah, you know, the path. This is kufr, this is kafir, this is being a kafir. In the books of the Urafa, of course, okay? In the books of the Urafa. The fact that you're relying on your knowledge and taqwa, no, you're supposed to do those things, but you rely on what? You rely on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This goes against tawheed if you're relying on anything other than Allah. So you do the taqwa, you have the knowledge, but you don't think that these are the active ingredient, yeah? Then what is the active ingredient? He says, Rahro, the one who is traversing, even if this person has a hundred skills, a hundred good things about them, what are they supposed to do? Tawakkul bayadash. They have to have tawakkul on Allah. It's all about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Oh Allah, I've got it all, but you don't, you've decided not to give it to me, I'm good. You want to give it to me after 40 years? I'm good. I'll still continue with my taqwa and my learning. You know? So it's all about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why it's famous. They say Amir al-Mu'minin alayhi salam. He wrote something on Salman al-Farsi's kafan when they were burying him. وَفَتُّ عَلَى الْكَرِيمِ بِغَيْرِ زَادٍ مِنَ الْحَسَنَاتِ وَالْقَلْبِ السَّلِيمِ وَحَمْلُ الزَّادِ أَقْبَحُ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ إِذَا كَانَ الْوُفُودُ عَلَى الْكَرِيمِ You've heard this before? وَفَتُّ I have entered upon So this is the kafan of Salman al-Farsi, Salman al-Muhammadi And on it Amir al-Mu'maneen is writing this poem or this line of poetry Salman is the, I would say, maybe one of the grandest of the Sahaba One of the grandest, if not the grandest of the Sahaba Top three for sure, in my opinion. Alright. 
So does he have to worry about his akhirah? This man, they say, when he passed away, he had just one, like, one rug that he had in his belongings. Maybe a rug and one more thing, maybe. That's about it. So that's how much zuhd he had. And all that, that uh, sacrifice that he made from the family that he left and the circumstances that he had that he left all the way till he found the Holy Prophet and then stayed with him all the way till the end after the Prophet, his bright report card and everything good about that. Alright, so this Salman al-Farsi doesn't have anything to worry about, inshallah. Imam Ali on his kafan writes that I have entered upon the Kareem. Yes, the generous one, which is Allah. So it's as if Salman is saying this. I have, uh, I have entered upon the generous one, the Kareem, without any provision. I got nothing on me. What provisions are we talking about? Min al-hasanat wal-qalb salimi Of hasanat, good deeds. And a sound heart. I have none of that. But you do, Salman. No, no, shh. Don't, you're not supposed to say it. In the realm of Tawheed and Allah, it's all Allah. Forget about everything. Okay? It's all Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I don't have a sound heart that the Quran says, إِلَّا مَنْ أَتَى بِقَلْبٍ سَلِيمٍ I don't have that. And I don't have hasanat. Oh Allah, you know why I'm not coming with any of this? Because if I am entering upon the generous host, yes, the ugliest and most disrespectful thing when you enter upon your host is to carry something with you of provisions, right? When I go to somebody's house, they're like, hey, come over for a meal. If I, if I, and it's happened to me, trust me, it's a true story. I've had people come over sometimes. We had lunch an hour ago, Habibi, like didn't you know we're going to have lunch together? What's wrong with you? That's disrespectful. Of course, it's okay. More for me and less for you. But uh, all in all, you go to somebody's house, they have prepared something. It is disrespectful to take something with you. You see how the, this, whole, this whole love thing that, that, and, and in, in, intimacy of the awliyaullah with Allah Himself is what it looks like? And then when you have this in mind, then you can recite Dua Kumil a little better. You can recite... Uh, Dua Abu Hamza a little better. You understand what's going on. There's a little bit more love in there than you would think. When you understand things like that and you see things in this light. I am Salman Muhammad. I have nothing to worry about. No, 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 no. It's not even about worrying, not worrying. Do I have anything? Do I not? I am entering upon Allah. I don't have there. Everything's burnt. Gone. Yes, if I can enter upon Allah, maybe it's because of some things that I did, but I got nothing. It's all Allah. So now talking about knowledge again, right? Talking about knowledge, um, a person with knowledge will never feel like they have something special. No, they will get the knowledge, they will gain the knowledge, all that good stuff, but in the end they will know that this is not what you rely on. You rely on Allah, you don't worry about the rest. Okay, I will end with this, these two lines or a couple lines uh, from Imam Khomeini. Okay? Way back, I don't know how many years ago this is, maybe, maybe 30, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, I don't know how long, 30, 35, I don't know. Ayatollah Mishkini, very, very spiritual shaykh. He's not alive anymore. Uh, we used to pray behind him in Salatul Jum'ah in Qum, very spiritual. In Salatul Jum'ah, he would recite Suratul Jum'ah in the first rak'ah and Suratul Munafiqun in the second rak'ah. <laughs> so that sometimes might have been a reason why we would skip that Jum'ah. Uh, because one week it was him, one week it was Ayatollah Jawadi, one week it was Ayatollah uh, Amini. 
So yeah, that was something that we would uh, take into consideration if we were going to Jummah that week. But no, he was a very wonderful individual. Everyone knew him as a very kind, soft-hearted, um, uh, spiritual sheikh. And so, and very learned as well. Very learned. Okay, so now this, Ayatollah Mishkini, he is once speaking in the presence of Imam Khomeini. And the Imam Jum'as of different cities of Iran are there as well in that gathering. Okay, this is like a two-minute clip, it's on YouTube as well. Alright, so he begins like this, he says, O oh, uh, great Imam, O oh, uh, oh, the great A'adham Marja' Taqlid of the Shia, O oh, great leader of the Muslims of the world, Rahbar Azim al-Sha'an al-Musalmanun, Malja' wa panahi mustaz'afan al-Jahan, the refuge, yes, and aid of the mustaz'afin, the weak ones of the world. Alayka minna salamullahi abada. Our salams to you, O Imam. Imam Khomeini. <laughs> Abadan, forever. Ma baqina, as long as we're alive. And then he goes on to speak of, you know, some of the things that issues of the Jummah, Salatul Jummah throughout the country and stuff like that, whatever. I, don't, I didn't read the rest. Now Imam Khomeini, at the end of this meeting, wants to speak. And this, I, I, would, I, would, I would really encourage uh, brothers and sisters, if they find this uh, video, I can send them a link if they would like, to check out the video. Just look at the face of Imam Khomeini, he's disgusted. Right? Because for him, he's always talking about these hijabs, and then all of a sudden here's somebody praising him like this. So what does he say? He says, before I begin, let me complain a little bit about Allah Mishkini. Uh, look at the wording, man. Look at the wording. He says, the amount that I am in, um, that I am grappling with, and I am, in, Far in Farsi it says, giriftar. I am stuck with my nafs, my, my carnal desires. We're talking Imam Khomeini in his like 80s, man. Either late 70s or in, or in his 80s. He has no nafs. Then he crushed it already. All right? There is no nafs. What are you talking about? But he says, he says, the amount that I am stuck with my nafs is enough for me, man. Don't, please don't say anything extra that will accumulate in my nafs, that will push me behind like where I already am. Throw me off even more than where I am with my nafs. And then he says this, this is a very heavy line here. It says, I need you to do dua that I become Adam. Adam bishavim. Do, do dua so I become a, a, an insan. Like I'm still stuck with my haywani nafs as if. Right? My animalistic nafs. I, I still have a way to go or ways to go to reach adamiyya, to be a real insan. So do dua for me. Do dua that I can even take care of these dhawahir of Islam, the do's and don'ts of Islam, the crust as they say. Forget the batin. Because he says, our hands will never reach we will never have access to the bawatin, the bawatin of things, the, the core of things. We're stuck in the, in the zahir. Do dua so I can at least do, take care of the zahir of things. This, this culture was, is not just Imam Khomeini, it was prevalent amongst our ulama. Always, this is what they were all about. And this is something that you find now in this day and age is lacking. And so we have to be very careful or else he's, he knows that if he's not careful, it'll become a hijab of darkness for him. He sees one of the greatest of you know those times Ayatollah Mishkini speaking like this, he doesn't hold back because he's afraid. And for him, his akhirah is everything and he doesn't want any veils on his heart. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, to give us tawfiq 
to be followers of such a path. Keep our heads down, take care of what matters, and that's all that matters, inshallah. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Any questions?